Open your Bibles with me this morning to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 5, where we left off two weeks ago. We're just going to read the first two verses there, verses 5 and 6, though we're going to go through the entirety of the chapter this morning. We're going to study the topic, or the title of the message is, God is Always Present. You'll remember that what has led us up to this portion of Scripture has been Habakkuk, whose name means to embrace or to wrestle, is viewing the turmoil around him, the evils, the wickedness, the iniquity of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom in which he was a prophet. He sees the injustices that are happening around him, and his initial response or question is, God, where are you? When are you going to intervene? Very honest response as we've studied two sermons so far, three sermons actually, so far in this book as Habakkuk is an honest prophet, different from the other prophets as he is not one that is speaking to the people for God, but here is one wrestling with what's going on around him. He's speaking to God here, in essence from the honesty of his own heart. Well, he asks God, as we have seen throughout this book so far, he asks God, where are you? When are you going to intervene? God answers and tells him, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to intervene with the Chaldeans. The Babylonians, the nation of Babylon, is going to come and punish Israel, punish Judah, as it were, for their wickedness. And Habakkuk confused because he acknowledges the fact that this nation that you're using to punish us is far more wicked than we are, Lord. Why is it that this far more wicked nation, far more secular nation, a far worse nation than us is going to be used as an instrument of your wrath. How can this possibly be? This mirrors some of the same language David would use in some of the imprecatory psalms as he would look to God and ask, Lord, why are the wicked prospering so much? And yet, at this moment, I suffer. One thing that I love about certain poetic Old Testament books such as the Psalms or Habakkuk, they're very honest. I've, I've noticed that we tend to just go through the pleasantries in general and honesty frightens us a bit. I think this is why the idea of washing the saints' feet is something that some people avoid, really, because you have to show yourself vulnerable, right? I thought it was strange as a child that people would wash one another's feet. And when you read that in John chapter 13, it seems strange. But one of the reasons why it makes us uncomfortable is because we are equally showing ourselves vulnerable before our brother. And I have no problem with washing somebody's feet, but having my feet washed opens myself up vulnerably to other people. And so here we see very vulnerable individuals and specific. In the book of Habakkuk, we see one man's wrestling and showing his vulnerability here on the pages that he writes down for us. And so he asks God when, where are you? God answers, he says, Lord, why? And then he, Habakkuk doesn't run from God, but instead he's going to stand up and say, I will stand upon my watch, I will set me upon the tower. He says, as a watchman stands and waits for, as a watchman stands and waits for his master to answer him, he says, I am equally going to stand up as a watchman, as a soldier of God, I'm going to stand up and wait for God's answers. He doesn't run from God. He understands that though he, doesn't under, though he doesn't understand what's going on around him, the one thing he does understand is that God is still righteous, he's still holy, he's still good, he's still just. And there must be, there must be some answer to the problem of his own mind. And he says, God, I'm going to wait for you to correct me. Well, God begins in verse 5 giving the answer the more full answer of what Habakkuk is waiting to hear. Because God has told him, take what I'm going to say to you, take this vision, write it, uh, speak, lie not, it, it will come to pass. And then he tells him, the just shall live by faith. 
The rest of these verses from verse 5 through verse 20 is Habakkuk coming to an understanding of how the just do live by faith. You see, faith is not just some fickle wish. It's not just some desire we hope to come true. Faith is not some blind walking, as it were. Sometimes we talk about faith, well, I know it looks bad, but you just got to have faith. And what a lot of people will say in that moment is, you know, we don't really know. You just got to positive thinking. Here's the thing. Faith is always in the Bible attached to an object. So when we're told to have faith, yes, it is connecting it to the fact that we walk by faith and not by sight, but that faith is directed towards an object to where we can say, even though it doesn't make sense around us, there is a central truth that I can look to and understand even though I'm overtaken in a problem right now, my faith is directed towards the object of my God, specifically for New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, where we can see, though it doesn't make sense, I have a steady, unmovable object that always makes sense. And so here, God is going to give Habakkuk a steady, unmovable object where it's not blind faith. And though he's not living by sight at the moment, he's given an object to direct his faith towards. He's given something to look to, to walk, and to continue in his own ministry. Let's read verses 5 and 6 in Habakkuk chapter 2 as we continue through this book and see God's answer to Habakkuk and see that God is always present. Verse 5. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him? and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Here, God is beginning what he calls a parable, and specifically a taunting proverb against the Babylonians. You notice that transitions from here, Habakkuk, being told the just shall live by faith, to then God immediately answering the question that Habakkuk is asking. He's going to direct their attention to what is going on in Babylon. Now, you'll remember Babylon is one of those nations that when we hear the name, it's the bad boy on the block. There are certain names in the Old Testament that when we hear, we understand that they are the enemy of Israel. Not only are they the enemy of Israel, but they're one of the bad boys that are against Israel. You know, some nations, you know, if I were to say Canada is going to invade us, nobody would really fret, right? <laughs> you know, and not that they would because uh, Canada and the United States have great relations. But at the same time, if you heard the name Canada and this idea of invasion, nobody would be really scared, right? <laughs> Nobody's that worried. Okay, guys, good luck on that. But if you heard other names, names that almost solicit fear Almost during every election, it would have more weight. And here, knowing that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, are coming now to attack the nation of Israel, he says, Lord, why are you doing it this way? And he says, no, Habakkuk, don't be overwhelmed with what I'm telling you, but live by faith and let your faith be attached to this object, understanding that in the final analysis of all things, it will make sense. Here, we're going to be given the final analysis of God's working both in Israel and in the nation of Babylon. A full final analysis of God's interworking and sovereignty and providence here in this portion of history. Well, he says, yea, also, not only do you live by faith as a just, righteous individual, but he says, yea, also, because he transgresseth, transgresseth by wine, speaking of those to whom their soul is lifted up in themselves. Again, notice a continuation from verse 4. The person whose soul is uplifted in themselves, the proud person, is the same person he's going to be describing in verse 5. Yea, also, this proud person the Babylonians, 
Because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. So he gives this first poetic view of what Babylon was. It's kind of a double-edged sword, because Babylon was known for drunkenness first. They were known for being overwhelmed by wine. You'll remember in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel is going to go to the last king of Babylon, and he's going to tell them that God's judgment is coming. You'll remember the story how the hand began to write letters on the wall. And most people don't realize this, but when you say that the writing is on the wall, that's a phrase we use even today, that's actually coming from the biblical story of Daniel, the writings on the wall. Well, the handwriting was on the wall saying that they would be weighed and they would be found guilty. Well, what was happening in that instance? They were in some type of drunken party. So it has some illumination that they're in the story. He's saying, you are like this, but it's also poetic here when he says that, that he transgresseth by wine. What he's saying is that these nations, this specific nation Babylon, is like a drunkard. They have heaped to themselves everything that they can. They're acting wildly. They're acting wickedly. And they're not satisfied with just staying in the bounds of their own nation, but they're going about destroying every other nation. Neither keepeth at home. They're not staying where they're at, but they're going about destroying all the other nations around them. And you can actually look in the back of your Bibles and see some of those maps um, that you have in the back and see uh, the nations and their boundaries, and you will see how certain nations took up what was called the known world at that time. Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they were never satisfied with just what they had, but began to take over everybody around them. They would not keep at home. They enlargest their desire as hell and is as death. In other words, they're not satisfied. Uh, one image that we're given here in a poetic way is that this nation was like death in the sense that they were trying to consume all life. This poetic phrase here, they were like death. Is death satisfied to leave anybody on this planet? No, it's not. As they have said, there's two things that nobody can escape, and that is death and taxes. And the Babylonians were the same way. They weren't satisfied with just one nation, with the two nations, with taking over a little bit of land here, but they were like death and just a black hole, as it were, sucking up all life from around them. As he explains, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all peoples. He's taking everybody from around them and destroying those nations. Well, God here in verse 6 is going to begin giving both a prophecy and a proverb, as it were. He's going to begin giving a parable describing what the Babylonians are doing, but equally in this parable gives a prophecy of what he is going to do to them. And you'll see starting in verse 6 the word woe here. Woe to him that increaseth. There are five distinct places where God gives a woe to Babylon in this chapter. Each woe is different. My son asked me this morning as he saw me reading and just refreshing and uh, just trying to make sure that I had every, all my uh, T's crossed and I's dotted, and he said, Dad, what's woe? You know, what is a woe? You know, because you remember the old uh, cartoon, such as Bugs Bunny, uh, woe, camel, woe, right? And, you know, Samity Sam starts beating the camel. I said, whoa. We had a dog incident this morning to where that may have been <laughs> a parallel between us and that. You know, that's not what it means. It's not woe, camel, you know, like slow down, hold up. It's not in that sense. But woe is calling down calamity. It's calling down judgment, so when he says woe here, it's a way to speak unto them judgment. Woe to you. This is bad for you. Woe to this nation. You can parallel this to Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 when he begins to call down woes to the nation of Israel. And he says woe to them, woe to them. He's calling down Sorrow, sorrowful judgment. And here is the same way. He's telling Babylon, woe to you. Now he is going to woe stop them, but right here he is calling down judgment to them as he says, woe, five distinct woes here. 
Verse 6, you see, woe to him. Verse 9, woe to him. Verse 15, woe to him. He continues to say in verse 19, woe to him. He goes, woe and woe and woe. Well, here this first one. He says, shall not all these take up a parable, a taunting proverb? Then he says, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. The first woe is God condemning the Babylonians for, for taking riches that did not belong to them. This first woe is him saying, you took something that didn't belong to you. You've taken the gold of nations. You've taken the riches of nations. This is not something that you brought about by yourself. This is something that you're going about and stealing your neighbors. He's saying, you have done wickedly when you have done this. And he compares this to clay just covering themselves. Now, they think that they're covering themselves with security by taking the riches of other people and taking what is not theirs, they think they have safety. But what he compares this to is covering oneself with clay. Now, we know what clay is in the Deep South, right? <laughs> we understand that you can mold stuff with clay. I remember as a child having a creek right beside our house. We'd go get that. Sometimes it was clay. Sometimes it was just red dirt. Um, I, I find it funny that people buy clothes nowadays that come already stained. You know, it didn't take probably a day for us as children to have that happen. They could have paid us to stain all their clothes, you know, because you go out as a southern child into the creek and between clay and red mud, you're coming back with tie-dye clothes. And clay, we understand what it is. You can mold it with your hands. It kind of um, firms up, and you can make shapes with it. Kids like to play with it. But the thing is, if you take that clay and just pop it, it's going to shatter, isn't it? Now, the riches that Babylon had accumulated for themselves and taken from other people, they thought it brought security. But all it really did was as if it was covering themselves with clay. It molded over them and made them feel good, but at the same time, it was going to break away really quick. The riches they had covered themselves with could not save them from the judgment of God. This is why in verse 7... He answers the question that he asks in verse 6 when he says, How long? He answers in verse 7, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee? And shalt thou shalt be for booties unto them or shall be treasures unto them. So he says there is going to be some people that are going to wake up and they are going to overtake you. Now, you had some sleeping giants in the Middle East at this time. You had uh, the Medes and the Persians that they had kind of demolished and had uh, been hurt by constant warring and battles. That area of the country, I swear, has been in a constant warfare <laughs> since the beginning of time. You can't find in biblical or secular history a time in which there was not fighting in that area. I'm all for peace and world peace. I just highly doubt it's going to happen. And you had sleeping giants there that Daniel describes as a bear that gets lifted up on one side. He describes it in that way because it was a mighty beast, two nations, and it begins to get lifted up on one side because one, the Persians, take over the Medes and become the dominant force. Well, this sleeping bear, this sleeping animal, is there hibernating as it were. Daniel paints it as a bear, and it's such an apt picture for them because they're sleeping there beside Babylon. And soon they would rise up and destroy the Babylonian nation. Well, God reminds them there's a sleeping giant coming. You've covered yourself with clay. You think you are escaping my wrath, but something is going to happen. The sleeping giant is coming. And he says the reason it is because in verse 8, because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and all that dwell therein. He says, because you have spoiled their land to make yourself rich, judgment is coming. He says in verse 9, the second woe. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his, to his house. The next woe that he gives against this nation is he pronounces judgment against them for gaining riches at the expense of others, or in essence, exploiting other people. He says, not only have you gotten riches that aren't yours, but the way that you did it was on the backs of other people. 
He pronounces the judgment against them. The stone shall cry out in verse 11. The stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber. He says that your own houses are here proclaiming judgment against you. He goes to the next woe in verse 12 because I want to get through these to see the practical impact of this to the New Testament believer. In verse 12, he says, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood. He then, in the third woe, pronounces judgment against their violence. And again, every time he gives a woe, he gives a judgment. He says, Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters of the sea. He says, Judgment is coming. The fourth woe. In verse 15, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, and putteth him the bo thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on the nakedness. This next woe is against their immoral behavior, and not only their immoral behavior, but that they are equally making other people suffer in their immorality. This is a frightening thought, because sometimes people are perfectly happy to be themselves, and I, I Y'all know me, I'm the kind of person that says, if you want to do that, just do it way over there. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> just stay off my lawn. There was a cult classic a long, time ago, a long time ago in the 90s. Long time ago in the 90s. What's sad, that can actually be said and have some truth to it now. <laughs> and make us all feel kind of sad this morning. But, you know, an old cult classic called The Tremors, and called Tremors, and it's these things that live under the ground and they saw some dust go and they said, I don't care what they're doing as long as they're doing it way over there. That's kind of how I feel most of the time. But you'll notice typically immorality or immoral people are never happy with just themselves being affected by the immorality. Typically it goes beyond that. They're wanting everybody else to be involved with it too, forcing other people to be involved with their wickedness. Well, here he says, woe to you for that. He pronounces judgment against them. And again, he says, my judgment is coming. He finally finishes in, well, the, in verses 18 and 19 with the last woe. And this one is prolific because all the other ones were their dealings between them and other nations. This final woe is different because it's the way that the Babylonians as a creation of God interacted on a spiritual level and who they put their trust in. It starts by laying the groundwork for this final one, what profiteth the graven images that the maker thereof hath graven it. He's going to mention false idols, idols that are made by man's hands, molten images he calls it. He says the people that make them are teachers of lies. He says anybody that teaches that these false idols can answer them are simply teaching falsehoods and lies and tricking the people that they're giving these idols to. He calls them dumb idols, meaning idols that cannot speak, they cannot answer, they cannot hear. And this is why he transitions to verse 19 by saying, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. He says, if you put your trust in anybody other than the God of all glory, you're putting it in the wrong place. And this goes past wickedness to a specific sin of infidelity to the God of the Bible. Now, do I believe in a special sense that God is our Lord as His chosen people, as His redeemed people? Yes. Only those to whom He has chosen can say that God is their Savior, right? He is their covenant Lord. But there is not a single person on this planet that can say that God is not their God in the sense of creator. God created all. He is the sovereign ruler of all. And as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, there is coming a day in which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That means every single person that has ever been born into this world will one day stand before the throne of God and kneel down and confess that Jesus is God without one person being able to stand up in obstinance and says, saying, I don't believe it. Some are going to bow in happiness and say, praise God, we've been waiting for it. And some are going to bow because they can't do anything else. <laughs> because God is the sovereign Lord of all. Well, this final woe is against their treatment of God. 
not only their treatment of other people, but their, now this fifth one, their treatment of God. And he sums up all of it as we're going to then turn to the New Testament to see how this impacts the way we see things. He sums it up in verse 20 by saying, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. He says, I've shown you how they are acting. I've shown you how they ignore my existence. A two-edged sword here, a double-edged sword, their wickedness to humans, and then the way that they act to God. But, or however, the Lord is in His holy temple. A few things that we can gather from this. One, their injustices are not outside of the eye of the Lord. God is in His holy temple. The dumb idols that they worship, these idols that cannot answer, these idols, these gods that are made with men's hands that cannot answer, they don't see anything. They don't speak. They don't have any understanding. They have no knowledge. But God is living God. God is, as our articles of faith say, the one true and living God. Somebody one time asked me, why do y'all have one true and living God in your articles of faith? I said, well, that's presenting two facts. One, that there is only one God. <laughs> There is only one. There is not multiple. There is not, we're not polytheistic. We don't believe in one God, and then you can have your God, and if you want to have your God. Now, people can make false gods and images and think that they're real, but there is ultimately only one God, and all the other ones are just dumb, false idols. And he is the one true and living God. Not only is he the one God to be worshipped, but he is the only one true God who is living and you see, it's saying God is not absent. God is there. God sees this. God is the ultimate judge. God has not lost his authority because iniquity and wickedness abounds. And not only is it saying that God is there, but equally God is in his holy temple. God is holy, and he is still ruling and reigning. What does this do for a New Testament believer? Sometimes we will read over some of these portions of Scripture... And I will be honest, the poetic nature can make it a little bit hard to read. Y'all heard me start to trip up on some of those words, right? As some, you know, a lot of those S's and then the last uh, suffix that transgress if, those N suffixes, are kind of hard to pronounce when you're just reading through. And we can gloss over as we read this section of Scripture, but this portion is probably one of the more pastoral, pastoral areas of the Old Testament, don't lose sight of the fact that God is presenting something to Habakkuk to which he is able to live by faith. So let's look at the first principle that we can see as we turn to the New Testament. Not too far away, uh, Matthew chapter 13. As we kind of pull together what God has told Habakkuk. In Matthew chapter 13, this is well-known as being one of the parable chapters of the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are a large percentage of chapters that deal primarily with parables. John only has one specifically named as in John chapter 10, possibly one in John chapter 15, but in the other three Gospels, there's a, there's a lot of parables. And here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24, Jesus uses the parable of the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. So he compares the kingdom of heaven here like a farmer who's going to till the ground and plant a crop. So he's painting this picture. He says, okay, the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, to sum up, can have different views or facets associated with it. Now, when the word church is used in the Bible, it typically refers to the local assembly. Sometimes the triumphant church is being presented, the church that embodies the entirety of the family of God, which will be presented to Christ or from Christ to God at the last day, but typically the local assembly. But the kingdom of heaven can mean the local church, it can mean the authority of God in your heart. The kingdom of heaven is in you. Sometimes it can mean just God's ruling in humanity 
Sometimes it can mean um, all of God's elect. Typically, an easy way to think about it is wherever God rules, that is the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes it comes in a manifest sense. Sometimes it can come in a very um, quiet way. Well, here he paints the kingdom of heaven in a sense in which we see the entirety of the family of God as it begins to progress to the last day. He uses this parable of the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. Thy servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And, but he said, in verse 29, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. So he paints a picture of a man that came and planted a field. Well, like anybody that has ever planted anything, you know that there are going to be, whether it's purposeful or not, you're going to know that there are often weeds that spring up where you're planting. I have struggled with this, and like I've told you before, me and Becca can kill just about anything. When it, we don't have green thumbs, we have black thumbs. We kill just about every plant that we plant. I am shocked that the plants that we've recently put up at the church are still growing. It must be that holy ground, right? <laughs> the holy dirt by the church. It, it's keeping it together in spite of our black thumbs. Well, you let your grass grow. You plant grass. Let's just say a yard. You plant grass and you plant the best grass, you put sod down, whatever it is, it's not going to take a season for you to start to see Dallas grass pop up, for you to see weeds pop up, clover pop up, and you're going to have stuff popping up all over the place. It just happens. Here in the text, we see that a wicked man came and planted bad seed, and they're growing up together. Well, Jesus gives an explanation of what this parable is discussing in verses 37 Onward, He says, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the, kingdom of, are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. So he says, what we're seeing here is a picture of how God has his children in the world, yet at the same time, the wicked one has people that he has full reign over. The ungodly, the unregenerate. And this is not saying that Satan has children in the sense that God has children. God is not, um, you know, sometimes Satan is painted in cartoons as being this ruler of hell. He's not the ruler of hell. He's going to be punished for all eternity. And he doesn't have his own children in that sense that he has his eternal children, God has his eternal children. What it's saying is that Satan is going forth persecuting the children of God, wheat, uh, tares growing up into wheat. Satan is the prince in the power of the air, and he's doing wicked things at the same time as God saving his children. And so they're intertwined together in time. Two things we should get from this. One, Jesus says that they can't separate the two until the very end. We should understand that not all things are going to make sense in a world that has tares intertwined with the wheat. We live in a world that is completely affected by the fall of humanity, that is affected by Satan constantly persecuting the children of God. We live in a world that is completely affected by death and sin. Things aren't going to always make sense. The tares have grown up with the wheat. Some things we're going to look at and say, why, Lord, has this happened? And we have to understand we can't necessarily separate it. Here he's saying he's not going to destroy the wicked in this parable at that moment. For what reason? Because God is long-suffering to the children of God. Sometimes God may not intervene in a situation because it may affect something else. You see, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, when it says that God is not long-suffering, God is not... Let me read that because I am getting that mixed up in the way that I'm trying to quote it. And 
the, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some, man can, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says God is not slack. He's not lazy. God is not just sitting back saying, I don't really want to act right now, but what he's doing is he is waiting for the final moment to bring full judgment on that day. Imagine if God came back in, let's say, directly after his crucifixion. He was crucified, risen again on the third day, and he came back. None of us would have ever existed, would we? So God waits until the very last child of God is born again, is brought into this world, born again, and then he comes back because he's not willing that any of his children perish. He's waiting until that end. So there's a waiting. We don't understand, but there is a waiting. There's a waiting in this moment because he says, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels. There is coming a time when he's going to send forth his angels, shall gather out of his children all things that offend and them that which do iniquity. He says there is coming a moment, but it cannot happen yet because in punishing the wicked, he may hurt the righteous. Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't act in a certain manner in a certain situation. And we wonder, God, where are you? You're absent at this moment, yet we don't realize that, as I've said before, we see just a few seconds ahead of us. Yet God sees the entirety of the full picture of what's going on. Now, I'm sure that the men standing around uh, the farmer here at this moment were like, can we just rip the tears up? Can we just rip them out and destroy them? And he says, no, if you destroy them, you may destroy some of the wheat as we take care of the tares. So we must wait. We must wait. So he says, do not judge prematurely. Do not think that God is not answering. Do not think that God is just waiting to be uh, malicious in any sense or he's just slack in that way. But no, God is waiting because his purpose and plan is better than what we can fully understand. Considering this in the view of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is giving a view. It, it, God says, yes, I'm going to punish Israel, but don't think that I'm not going to punish also Babylon. I've got both covered, but both come in their own time. And he says, I'm going to handle both. Do not judge prematurely. I'll also say as an added note to this, as it specifically is connected to Matthew 13, this means we can't judge individuals prematurely. Now, it's true that assurance of salvation is only given to believers in Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. Assurance is reserved to believers. However, how many people thought that the thief on the cross would be with Christ in paradise that day? I guarantee you that everybody standing around him was probably like, that guy is going to bust hell wide open. <laughs> that horrible thief, that wicked man. Yet God turned that individual's heart in due time. This should tell us that God is also the ultimate judge. We're not to judge prematurely in time of the wickedness that is around us and wonder why God is not acting because he is acting. God is in his holy temple. God is still there. God still does here. But equally, this teaches us not to judge individuals prematurely because I'm judging from a snapshot of somebody's life and I don't know the work that God may have done in that individual's heart. It changes the view, doesn't it? It changes the way we think because we see so two-dimensional, yet God sees in a 3D way, in a 4D way. He sees everything, and He's working His will according to His own time. He is not slack. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten that tares are growing up with the wheat. He hasn't forgotten that wickedness exists in this world at the same time of righteousness. But sometimes God is waiting because His purposes knows better than ours. Sometimes acting immediately may hurt the righteous along with the wicked. Well, equally, we're going to see another place, the final hope of the believer, in 2 Thessalonians. Now, 
This epistle was written to a group of people that had already been told by Paul to not be overwhelmed with sorrow. Sorrow not as others who have no hope, as he would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first epistle deals with their sorrow and the loss of believers that had went on before them. They were overwhelmed with sorrow, and he tells them, do not sorrow as others who have no hope, and, but he tells them to sorrow in a way that a believer should, with the hope of future blessings in Christ, knowing that they shall not prevent them, they shall not go before, but they will rise together in Christ in the last day. Well, it's believed that they may have gotten a little too, <laughs> they had maybe gotten a little too, uh, excited and possibly thought, okay, Paul said Jesus was coming back. He's coming back now. Now, I hope that we all have the attitude that Jesus is coming back now, right? Every day is we are in the mindset that we are one moment closer to Christ coming back, but he may not come back right now. Well, he's writing to a group of people in the second epistle to remind them that some stuff has to happen first. That's what he really gets into in chapter 2 where he talks about the... Uh, man of sin is coming. Well, in chapter 1, he's going to immediately speak to their own situation. In verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecution and tribulations that ye endure. He says, We are thanking God not that they're being persecuted. Paul wasn't saying, I'm so glad that you're getting punished. <laughs> you know, sometimes we see something happen and our immediate response is, I'm glad it wasn't me. And we think that, you know, secretly in the depth of our heart, we're thankful that we haven't experienced some of the ills of other people. And we think, oh, I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm glad, you know, when our children are born, we say, well, if they got all 10 fingers and all 10 toes. And that's our way of saying, I'm glad that what other people have experienced, my children are not experiencing. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying here is he's thankful for how they persevere and endure in spite of the tribulations. He says, everything that you've endured, I'm thankful to our God that you've endured it and continued to persevere through it in hope of Christ. For your patience and faith, those thing, two things connected together, being that they are long-suffering in the moment, and the way that they're long-suffering in that their faith was strong in Christ. But then he gives them the reason their faith was strong in Christ. He says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. He says, the reason you're happy in this persecution is because it is an evidence that you are God's child. Now, there was a song, and I mentioned this sometimes, uh, in reference to suffering. It was a song from the 90s, and it was uh, by a band called the Goo Goo Dolls. You'll have to indulge me just for a minute. It was a song called Iris. And one specific line in that song said, when everything feels like the movies, I bleed just to know I'm alive. Nobody likes pain and suffering, do we? I don't think anybody wakes up that morning and says, I want to feel pain today. However, if pain does nothing else, if the sorrow of this world does nothing else, it testifies to our heart's and minds that we're alive in Christ. It is an evident token of the fact that you seek a better world. It is an evident token that you are God's if you feel that the sufferings of this world teach you that it's not your final home. And Paul looks at them and says, the sufferings that you have, happen to exist in at this moment. He says, it is an evident, it is a token of the righteous judgment of God that you are counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. And then he gives another token. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them which trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. He says, you who are being persecuted... Find peace and tranquility 
in the midst of it, knowing this. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The idea of punishment doesn't immediately give us a thrill. It shouldn't. The idea of somebody being punished doesn't make us, I'm glad he got what was coming to him. And that's not the sense in which the Bible is portraying that we should have an attitude of happiness that people are being punished, right? But what we're given here is not that we're happy that somebody else is being punished, but we're given hope that we can rest in that every injustice that happens is not overlooked by God. You see, connecting it back to Habakkuk, that final verse that the Lord is in his holy temple, that means God is ever living. That means God is always there. That means God is always seeing. There is not a single injustice that happens that God does not see or that dethrones God or one that he cannot fix. Injustices happen on a daily basis, whether they happen on an individual level or they happen on a national or international level. Injustices, sin, wickedness, things happen constantly that vex our heart and soul that makes us cry out to God, Lord, when will you fix this? And the view of Habakkuk and the view of the New Testament believer is that though he doesn't fix it at the moment because we cannot judge prematurely, Yet there is coming a day in which he will. That everything that has hurt our soul throughout our entire life will be answered. Every single injustice that has broken our heart, every family member that has been taken too soon, every single sickness, the cancers of this world, every death, The things that break our heart when we see it every single evening on the news, God is going to answer that in flaming fire, in vengeance. Our God will right every wrong. And this is why he says this is a way that we can gather rest. How is it that the just can live by faith? How is it that you who are justified by the righteousness of God? How is it that you, who are God's chosen people, wrestling with what is around you, trying to embrace the knowledge of God that he's given you in his word, how is it that you who are righteous can live by faith? Uh, Direct your faith to its object. Direct it to Christ, who will come again and judge the world in his righteousness. Rest in that hope that though the sufferings of this present time seem so overbearing that the glory that will be revealed in you is greater than that suffering. Rest to know that there is coming a day in which God will fix it all. You know, the old heavens and old earth are compared with the present heavens and earth and the new heaven and the new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3. And they're compared in a way to where God brings judgment. I considered this as I was studying how we should focus our faith on that future moment in which Christ will right all wrongs. And the present existence is often compared to our future existence. And the only reason this world is not as bad as it could be is because God's sovereign hand keeps it from being worse. You know, total depravity doesn't mean that it's as bad as it could be. It just means that it is fully given over to its depraved nature. Well, imagine as bad as this world is, as always being compared to our future home, if the present is that bad, How glorious is the future going to be? You see, that's the hope that Paul rested in. And that's the view that Habakkuk is given. It's a view that I feel that we've lost in today's society. We used to write songs 
that would say farther on how much farther it is better farther on we would sing songs about looking for the future we will understand it better by and by you see the hope of saints past was not in the present but it was knowing that God would one day separate the wheat from the tares and in that moment in his righteousness every injustice would be fixed and he would reveal to us in its fullness his beauty, his grace, his love for all eternity, and it will make everything else seem as though it was nothing. I, we are going to stop here today, um, but let us direct our faith in times of trial to not the moment, but the object of our faith, which is above the trials, and our God who sits in his holy temple. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for giving us an object of faith. Thank you, gracious Lord, that we can look to your word and find peace and hope to know that regardless of the trials that surround us, that, Lord, your love is ever-present and your grace is sufficient to sustain us in this moment. Lord, as we're overwhelmed by whatever it is that affects us today, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not look at the now and ask when, Lord, and ask why. But Lord, even when we ask these honest questions to you, we can still look up and know that in the final moment of human history, when you separate the good from the bad and you answer all injustices, Lord, let us keep our hope in that moment to know that even though we don't have answers now, that, Lord, we do have the final answer, that you will fix it all. Gracious God, help us to direct our faith towards you. Be with us to be able to do that in Christ's name. And amen.